The thing I want to tell America, I never wanted to be here. I never, I do not like the idea that you govern by chaos, you govern by a deadline. What are you talking about, Kevin McCarthy? That's the only way you people well, govern. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and the envy of the nation, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet. on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, your democracy and accountability and climate crisis world news headquarters whether we like it or not. Thank you for uh, jo- whether you like it or not. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, Desi Doyen. Hey, we try to cover all the good stuff. We do. Well, good stuff in quotes, okay, I guess. all the important stuff. There you go. That's a little closer. Uh, anyway, we do have a number of democracy and accountability stories coming up for you today. And yes... Climate crisis stories uh, on our latest Green News report a little bit later today. Yep. But uh, let's jump right into the democracy part of this today. Uh, You know, the Republican Party, uh, frankly, they are in trouble. They know it. We know it. Everyone knows it. Their policies, which largely amount to little more than cutting taxes for rich people, and corporations that are owned by rich people and increasing uh, their profits at all costs, even if it means taking away health care from Americans and making our deadly climate crisis even worse by helping their friends in the fossil fuel industry to continue killing Americans. And oh, yes, also taking away rights and freedoms from um, um, the American people in the bargain. These these things are not actually popular with the American electorate. Go figure. All of this culture war nonsense that the Republican Party has been on about uh, taking away reproductive freedoms, taking away rights for LGBTQ people, etc. This is actually not working for them either. Even though they keep passing these laws in states around the country, which they still control where they still control them, 
in in hopes of doing just that, taking away rights from people. The American people don't care for it. It is actually losing them elections, which I'll try to get to in a bit. So with these unpopular policies and in lieu of, you know, actually changing those policies to positions that American voters actually want. Well, they can't do that because that would, you know, hurt their funders, their campaign donors that they rely on to try and win elections. You know, with all of that, Republicans only have a few choices left if they want to try to somehow continue to win those elections. They can game the electoral system. And you'll notice the states where they're able to do any of this stuff, they have already gamed the electoral system, largely with gerrymandering meant to keep themselves in power. But they're using the power gained by those gerrymanders right now to make voting harder and harder for voters who do not necessarily vote for Republicans in those states. And where needed, they are adopting laws that will allow them to remove Democratic-leaning election officials altogether if they get in the way of those Republican efforts. And, of course, uh, where all of that doesn't work, there's always, yes, political violence and terrorism which we are seeing more and more of, as you may have noticed, in recent months and years, particularly after their greatest effort at political violence and terrorism. That would be the January 6, 2021 attacks on the U.S. Capitol to try and steal a presidential election. That did not exactly work out for them, but not for lack of trying. We've seen a huge spike in threats against Democratic lawmakers, federal lawmakers, since January 6th, according to the Capitol Police. You're familiar, of course, with the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband by a hammer-wielding man last year shouting, Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Just uh, echoing what we heard during the insurrection at the Capitol. We heard about an attack against two Democratic congressional staffers with a baseball bat a week or so ago in Virginia. We've had mass shootings targeting immigrants and people of color, such as the incident just over two weeks ago, I think, at an Allen, Texas outlet mall by a far-right AR-15 wielding extremist with Nazi tattoos who shot and killed eight, the youngest of whom was a three-year-old boy. The man injured seven others. It all seems to be of a piece with a party and a far right that is more and more extreme, that has more and more extreme political ideology that is actually not doing well for the Republican Party as their adherents seemingly become more and more desperate. And, of course, we saw what seems to be, at least at this hour, yet another potential chapter in that same sad, pathetic story. Police have arrested a Missouri man that they believe intentionally crashed a U-Haul truck into a security barrier at a park across from the White House. The driver smashed into the barrier near the north side of Lafayette Square on Monday night around 10 p.m., according to a Secret Service spokesperson. The uh, driver was identified as a 19-year-old from Chesterfield, Missouri, a St. Louis suburb, which I know well enough to note that it is just across the river from St. Charles, which is one of the most far-right enclaves in the state. 
And it's where most national uh, Republicans show up to do their rallies and to glad hand when they're running for national office and hoping to win what was, at least until I moved out of it, so I blame myself, a critical swing state. I'm sure it is Midwest. not your fault that it's no longer a, a says, swing state. Says you. <laughs> says you. I still blame myself. Anyway, uh, thankfully, no one was injured in that crash near the White House, which seems to have been on purpose. Uh, based on a pr- preliminary investigation, uh, investigators believe that the driver, quote, may have intentionally struck the security barriers at Lafayette Square. That, according to the Secret S- uh, Service statement, a witness said the driver smashed into the barrier at least twice. Yeah, that sounds intentional. Kind of. Uh, he said, uh, and he videotaped a part of this, the, the second part of the crash. He said, uh, when the van backed up and rammed it again, I decided I wanted to get out of there. Good call. But video posted by WUSA-TV shows a police officer at the scene picking up and inventorying several pieces of evidence from the truck, including a Nazi flag. And that, of course, immediately set off the Republican MAGA crowd on social media on Tuesday, where they insisted that all of this must have been a setup just to make Republicans look bad. Though why Republicans would tie themselves to Nazis uh, is perhaps only a question that they can answer. The Washington Post reports that an official speaking on the condition of anonymity said the man was unarmed and no firearms were found in the truck. So I'm just saying, but, you know, if the FBI was trying to set up Republicans, as these MAGA folks on Twitter seem to be claiming today, uh, you know, by citing the uh, oh, so convenient appearance of a Nazi flag, Well, then why didn't the FBI also plant a gun or some explosives or something in this great, big, largely empty, rented U-Haul truck? Just asking. Especially since, you know, that would be, as I understand it, illegal in D.C. So, sure, it would enhance the charges. You would think. But, you know, logic, I suppose, is not a strong suit in these conspiracy theories. In any event, the U.S. Park Police said the uh, the man was arrest, re- arrested on multiple charges, including threatening to kill, kidnap, or inflict harm on a president, vice president, or member of their family, assault with a dangerous weapon, reckless driving, destruction of federal property, and trespassing. Lafayette Square, which, uh, as the AP notes, offers perhaps the best view of the White House available to the public, has long been one of the nation's most prominent venues for demonstrations. The park was actually closed for nearly a year after federal authorities during the Trump administration fenced off the entire area at the height of the nationwide protests over Policing following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but uh, the uh, park was then reopened under the Biden administration because, you know, free speech and all in uh, in May of 2021. Political violence, political terrorism. We're, we're seeing much more of it than, uh, you know, it, it seems than than as all of the other plans from the far right do not seem to be working out as well as hoped. Political violence, political terrorism, and then there is economic terrorism. And that is what is underway right now, as we have been discussing for several weeks now in the debt ceiling fight by House Republicans hoping to or at least threatening to crash the entire U.S. and global economy by forcing a federal default on our ability to pay our bills for the first time in the nation's history if they do not get what they want. 
And what do they want? Well, they're pretending the federal debt is too high. That's what they want you to believe. But they do not actually mean that either. If you pay close attention, they do not talk all that much about debts and deficits. They actually talk about government spending, that they need to cut government spending. They don't talk about the need to lower the deficit unless they occasionally slip up on their talking points. They don't actually care about the deficit. They don't actually care about the debt, the national debt or the deficit, as the prospects Ryan Cooper makes clear today. Now, we've mentioned this once or twice, but Cooper actually dives into some specifics that I think is worth underscoring today to sort of help you push back against your Fox News zombified friends and, and family and co-workers who defend somehow crashing the, uh, the U.S. economy due to too much debt, which is completely false and, and decidedly not what Republicans are saying if you actually bother to listen to them closely. During the whole of the ongoing hostage negotiations over the debt ceiling, writes Ryan Cooper, Republicans have repeatedly claimed that they're demanding massive spending cuts because the government is borrowing too much. Quote, they actually want to spend more money than we spent this year, said Speaker of the House Kev McCarthy recently, claiming, making this claim about Democrats. We can't do that. We all know how big this deficit is, he said. All right, but spending is not the only thing that increases the deficit, is it, Kev? His GOP colleagues, they know that as well. So they, too, continue to focus on government spending as the big villain here. Quote, I have said since I first ran that I would not vote for a debt ceiling increase apart from the cuts in spending that would put us on a path to fiscal responsibility. That was Congressman Bob Good of Virginia some months ago. Freedom Caucus Chair Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania said, quote, the point is that this current debt crisis has been created solely by reckless Democrat policies and out of control spending. But all of these are bald faced lies, writes Cooper. Republicans do not even care slightly about the national debt. He says the last time they had the run of the federal government, they passed laws that required tremendous borrowing. One obvious piece of evidence, he notes, is that the Biden administration has proposed numerous revenue raisers as part of the negotiations. Yes, if you actually care about the debt and deficit spending, you might increase revenue to decrease both the debt and the deficit. But those proposals have all been dismissed out of hand by Kevin McCarthy and his hostage negotiators. Jeff Stein reports at The Washington Post, quote, on a phone call last week, senior White House officials floated about a dozen tax plans to reduce the deficit as part of a broader budget agreement with House Republicans. They were all swiftly rejected by the GOP aides. If one were legitimately concerned above all with budget deficits, writes Cooper, then it makes no sense to categorically rule out reducing it with more taxes, especially at a time of historically giant corporate profits. Another supporting piece of evidence here is that Republicans' ransom demands include rescinding the additional $80 billion in funding for the IRS that was passed in last year's 
Inflation Reduction Act. After all, that's an $80 billion uh, cut to spending, right, according to the Republicans? Well, yeah, but it would also increase the deficit if you cut that spending. Funding the IRS not only greatly improves customer service at the agency— Cooper notes that the uh, money, uh, thanks to that money, uh, phone response time with the IRS fell by 84 percent during the 2023 tax season. Have you ever tried to call the IRS? If so, you will be very happy to know that the call time, uh, you know, the, the response time fell by 84 percent this past year. Already. Shows how much that money actually makes a real difference in customer service alone. And has also pays for itself. Yes. Literally. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated that the new funding for the IRS will produce a net revenue increase of $124 billion over a decade. In other words, spend $80 billion over the next 10 years to lower the national debt by $124 billion over that same decade. But of course, even though cutting that money to the IRS would increase deficit spending each year, Republicans are still insisting on those cuts. The reason, as Cooper notes, is that chronic IRS underfunding has led to a collapse in the audit rate. Aha! That largely among rich people. Vanessa Williams at the Brookings Institution reports, quote, three-fifths of the tax gap, that's the uh, unpaid taxes, largely by the rich, is due to underreporting of income by the top 10% of taxpayers. And more than a quarter of that comes from the top 1% of taxpayers. That, as she notes, that audits of millionaires have dropped 61% in less than a decade. For those making more than $5 million, the audit rate has dropped 87%. Well, that sounds nice for them, doesn't it? Want to get that money into the government coffers, as it should be by law? Increase enforcement by the IRS. Increased revenue means uh, less deficit spending. But Republicans are, they do not care about deficit spending. One would think that even for people who do not favor tax increases, making sure that the wealthiest pay what they actually legally owe under the existing laws, the existing tax structure, that that would be a good deficit-cutting idea. But again, one would think wrong. Snarks Cooper. The most convincing piece of evidence that Republicans are lying has to do with the Trump tax cuts. These were basically the only piece of major legislation that the GOP passed under Trump. And despite the usual predictions that they would, of course, pay for themselves through supply side magic pixie dust. <laughs> in so fact, much nonsense. in fact, they turned out to blow up the deficit that Rep Republicans are pretending to be concerned about now. As they were warned at the time, pretty much everybody said so, but they did it anyway. And in fact, they did not include extending the uh, Trump tax cuts in their debt ceiling ransom note. That's the so-called Limit Save Growth Grow Bill, Grow Act, 
that was uh, barely passed by Republicans uh, in the House a few weeks ago, demanding hundreds of billions in cuts to the social safety net, like food and health care for the poor and the nation's veterans, that in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. They didn't call for actually rolling back any of those Trump tax cuts or or for making them permanent beyond the 10 years that they apply. But at least 73 House Republicans joined as co-sponsors of a bill in February to make those Trump tax cuts permanent, as many of the provisions will expire in 2025. That, of course, making them permanent would further increase the national debt that those very same Republicans are pretending to care about at the very same time. And McCarthy, uh, Speaker McCarthy himself, endorsed the idea of making those tax cuts permanent. So, yeah, they don't care about the deficit. The Congressional Budget Office recently estimated that making the Trump cuts tax cuts permanent would actually in- increase the national debt between 2024 and 2033 by a whopping, are you sitting down here, $3.5 trillion dollars. Trillion, three point five trillion. That's what the Democrat. Uh, that's what the Republicans want to do. Want to make that permanent. And of course, they want single moms and veterans and the poorest Americans and the elderly to pay for the Republicans' massive tax cuts. Of course, of course. But it all cuts in, uh, you know, to the deficit. It all makes the debt and the deficit worse, even while they're pre- uh, pre- pretending that they don't. Uh, they must do something about the debt and deficit. No. That report from the uh, from the CBO that it would cost three and a half trillion dollars if they left those tax cuts in place, that changed nobody's mind on the Republican side. They are still in favor of making that permanent. As Cooper notes, it's absolutely certain that if Republicans win control of Congress and the presidency in 2024, they will absolutely make those Trump era tax cuts permanent and they will probably add more. So this is the pattern. Pay attention. It is easy to spot. When a Democrat is president, they scream and they cry about budget deficits. But then they demand only sweeping spending cuts and only to, by the way, uh, certain non-defense related things, you know, stuff that actually helps people. And then they shut down the government or they take the debt ceiling hostage in order to get those uh, cuts to the budget that they want. Those unpopular cuts typically harm the economy for which the president and the Democrats are then blamed. Then it's the Republicans turn. They take all the budget headroom that was created by the forced austerity under Democrats and they immediately hand it to their oligarch benefactors in the form of tax cuts for the rich, blowing the deficit back up. We saw this cut and inflate pattern during the Clinton and then George W. Bush administrations. We saw it again during the Obama and then the Trump administrations. And now we are seeing the first part of that scheme again today in the 100 percent phony fight over increasing the nation's borrowing limit to pay for the stuff that, yes, Republicans previously voted for, including their decreases in revenue via giant tax cuts to their rich friends and corporations. Increasingly, Cooper observes, the beneficiaries of this duplicitous two-step include Republican members of Congress themselves. Congressman Vern Buchanan of Florida, for example, he introduced the bill to make the tax cuts 
permanent in February. Well, he's a very wealthy man. He benefited personally from those Trump tax cuts that he now wants to make permanent. He benefited to the tune of an estimated $2.1 million. So, yeah, no wonder he wants to make them permanent. That may be the reason why on the very day that the law was signed, Cooper notes, Buchanan went out and bought himself a multi-million dollar yacht. Seriously. There are many reasons for President Biden to consider executive action, such as simply invoking the 14th Amendment provision that the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned. He could simply declare that he will follow the law mandating that the Treasury Department pays the bills mandated by Congress and simply ignore the unconstitutional debt ceiling law. There are many good reasons to do that, as we've been discussing in recent weeks, and in the bargain, hopefully abolish the dumb debt ceiling once and for all. But a big reason to do that, Cooper argues, is to get rid of of one way that the Republicans can punch the American economy in the solar plexus so that they can then hand millions of dollars to their campaign donors and, yes, to themselves. Because, yes, that is all that this is about. It has nothing to do with the debt or deficit. Please pay attention. But it does have to do with winning elections, not by having the most popular policies, but by unleashing economic terrorism against the nation, hope that the Democrats get blamed for it, and then getting a cut of that money back from the campaign donors so that they can use it to win elections and repeat this whole cycle again. We have seen it over and over and over again. And of course, if that doesn't work, well, they've also got another plan to prevent them from having to come up with popular policies that voters might actually want, and that is to keep the voters from voting at all. And that is where we will pick things up in the next segment, along with some Trump accountability news this afternoon. All of that straight ahead, if time allows. After a quick break, I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. <laughs> Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Get your calendars out. We got some scheduling of note when it comes to accountability for our criminal former president today. As you're uh, as you're getting that out, uh, a bit of news on the accountability for Donald J. Trump from late on Monday evening. The New York Times and Washington Post separately reported on Monday night on what appears to be the same subpoena from Special Counsel Jack Smith in the Mar-a-Lago stolen documents investigation with each of the outlets having different but related tidbits about what it was seeking this subpoena and when. This according to David Kurtz, who rounds it up at TPM today. The top line shared by both of the reports, the subpoena of the Trump organization by Jack Smith sought records of business deals from seven foreign countries since 2017. 
when Trump took office, when, as you will recall, Trump said he would not be conducting any foreign business at all while he was serving in the White House. So the subpoena was apparently issued in April of this year, according to The Washington Post. The countries where Smith sought business records regarding Trump organization business are China, France, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. The only known foreign deal actually consummated during the period in question was in Oman, and it came after Trump left office. Now, as you will recall, a few weeks ago, we covered a report from The New York Times also on Trump's stolen documents, into the middle of which they, uh, The Times dropped a, a two-paragraph reference that seemed at the time to be a bit of a blockbuster, uh, a buried lead, if you will, that they just dropped into the story that Jack Smith was seeking information on Trump's dealings with the Saudi-backed Live Pro Golf outfit which is a tour that's using a bunch of Trump golf courses around the world. They just sort of dropped that in. Why, why was that dropped in into, the into a story about the stolen documents? Many of them highly classified. That was, not un that was not clear at the time, and frankly, it is still not clear. However, the Times uh, reports that this subpoena regarding these dealings with these seven countries is part of that same subpoena that the Times previously reported on uh, that was seeking information on Trump's dealings with the Saudi-backed pro-golf tour. Got that? So for whatever reason, they were uh, looking into the Saudis uh, in that subpoena. They're also now looking into China, France, Turkey, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, and Oman. Neither the Times nor the Post was able to piece together why the Trump organization's foreign business dealings would suddenly be relevant to the former president's unlawful possession of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. But as Kurtz gen generously notes here, uh, subpoenas can be used to not only uncover wrongdoing, but also to rule it out. So this could just be a matter of the special counsel making sure that there wasn't something going on that they don't already know about with those seven countries that seem pretty specific seven countries to me. But in any event, it is not known publicly what, if anything, the Trump organization has produced in response to those subpoenas. But it seems noteworthy. So I'm sharing it with you for now. In more Trump accountability news today, and this is the part you're going to need to mark calendars for, perhaps a New York judge on Tuesday has now set a trial date for March 25, 2024, for the state's criminal case against the former president and the current 2024 GOP presidential frontrunner. That date, March 25, comes smack dab in the middle of the Republican presidential primary season. Oh, this is going to be fun. Not yeah. exhausting at all. It comes about uh, two weeks. I checked the calendar. It comes about two weeks after um, uh, Super Tuesday. And uh, I think just a day or two after Ohio, Florida, et cetera, have elections. So right in the middle of the election season, the, pre the former president of the United States will be going to trial for 34 felony counts. The uh, trial date was set during a brief hearing on Tuesday in which the judge, Juan Marchand, read Trump an order 
on what he can and can't say publicly about the case and about the evidence that his legal team will get from prosecutors to prepare for the trial. Trump appeared remotely via video feed so that the judge could communicate directly with him in open court. He has pled not guilty uh, last month to those 34 felony counts of falsifying business records with the intent to conceal illegal conduct connected to his hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels meant to help him win the 2016 presidential election uh, and uh, then hiding those payments he made, uh, essentially covering it all up with additional payments to his attorney, Michael Cohen, while he was serving in the White House as president of the United States. Judge Mershon reiterated that there is not currently a gag order in place, so Trump can publicly defend himself against these allegations, but he cannot publicly share evidence released to his attorneys by the New York prosecutors. Quote, the judge said, it is certainly not my intention in any way to impede Mr. Trump's ability to campaign for president of the United States. He is free to defend himself against these charges. He's free to campaign. He's free to do just about anything that does not violate the specific terms of the protective order. Trump can only view some evidence that is designated as limited dissemination materials. He can only view that in the presence of his own attorneys. He cannot copy, photograph, transcribe, or otherwise independently possess that evidence per the order. He also cannot share or post the information that he gleans from that evidence on any social media, at least without prior, prior approval from the court, or he will face sanctions. Defense motions in the case are now due by August 29, and prosecutors must respond to that by October 10. The next hearing in this case is now scheduled for January 4, 2024. <laughs> for those who tell time by the presidential primary calendar, as some of us do, that would be four days before the Iowa caucuses on January 8 next year. I think it's really excellent that the judge required Trump to appear via video conference so that he could directly inform yeah. him of all of the terms of this protective order so that Trump and his lawyers can't say, oh, the lawyers didn't relate the right information to him. He can't hide mm -hmm. behind his lawyers like he has done in pretty much everything else. Although... He, uh, let's see, this says the former president only spoke to confirm that he had a copy of the protective order. He said, yes, I do. He didn't say anything above and beyond that. Mm -hmm. His attorney uh, said during the hearing, uh, quote, he understands that he has to comply with the order. And if he doesn't do so, he's violating your order. So that's that's all he said. We'll see if he is able to. <laughs> not violate that order uh, more immediately on your calendar on your accountability calendar and 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 perhaps a, a bit more unnervingly is the scheduling of uh, out of the great state of Georgia we love Georgia where uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's prosecution of Trump and his broad conspiracy to attempt to steal the 2020 election there is both moving forward and now seems to have some pretty precise dates, which you also may wish to mark on your calendars if you haven't already. In a letter late last week to the chief judge of the Fulton County Courthouse, 
Willis said that she plans on having 70% of her staff working remotely for some reason between July 31 and August 18 this summer for some reason. Those who will remain in the courthouse at that time include the office's leadership staff and, quote, all armed investigators, unquote, according to her letter. She uh, she writes, uh, quote, I respectfully request that judges not schedule trials and in-person hearings during the weeks beginning Monday, August 7 and Monday, August 14. Willis did not give a reason for that unusual request in her letter. It was first reported by The New York Times last week in a separate letter to local law enforcement last month. She said she'd, quote, announced charging decisions resulting from the investigation my office has been conducting into possible criminal interference in the administration of Georgia's 2020 general election during the state's uh, during the state superior court's fourth term. That begins July 11 and it ends September 1. So now those dates are narrowed a bit to July 31 through the week ending on August 18. Got it? So 19 days, basically. She didn't say why. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear she's not only going to indict the former president of the United States during that time from July 31 to August 18, but it's going to be charges that I guess are, are big enough that it seems she's pretty much shutting down city business in Atlanta over those uh, two plus weeks. It's also interesting because it's sort of the opposite of how Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, handled things when he charged Donald Trump with 34 felony counts just a few weeks ago. And, you know, it was largely business as usual uh, in, in downtown Manhattan at the courthouse. So is Willis... Uh, Overplaying it? What, what are you, la what well, are you laughing? Well, I'm laughing because about? I remember that right yeah. before Bragg made his announcement, yeah. they were filming a big scene from the next Joker movie. Right. So they wanted to be sure that I think that it didn't conflict with this obvious crowd and uh, crazy stuff yeah. going on right in front of the courthouse yeah. back then. So yeah, and and I think for her though, there maybe is a bit more to it because it is. Uh, it seems like it's a bigger, broader. Case, case that she has yeah. built here so we shall see well it's uh likely as everyone understands it to be a large racketeering conspiracy case the special grand jury that uh, met last year to help investigate possible election interference as nbc describes it uh, by trump and his allies recommended indicting more than a dozen people including as the jury four person noted Quote, certainly names that you will recognize in the month since a number of fake electors. Uh, these are people who signed a certificate falsely declaring that Trump had won Georgia in 2020. They have struck immunity deals with Willis's office, according to court filings. And then there's folks like Rudy Giuliani. And maybe, though it seems seems unlikely, but who knows at this point, folks like Senator Lindsey Graham who also reportedly took part in the conspiracy to strong-arm state officials into changing the results from Joe Biden's win in Georgia to a win for Donald Trump. They all could also be charged in this broad racketeering conspiracy case here. Uh, so July 31 through August 18, mark it on your calendars, cancel your vacations, <laughs> or 
make make them, depending on how you might view all of this. Might be a good time to uh, get out of town. I don't know. Uh, now, in other George accountability news, I was being deposed last week, which is why I didn't wasn't here to report on that uh, new news from Fonnie Willis. I was uh, being deposed myself last week when this story about the scheduling broke in Georgia, being deposed in the lawsuit in which I am a plaintiff representing media against Georgia's SB 202 voter suppression law, which, in addition to doing a bunch of stuff that many folks may remember, like barring giving uh, food and water to people, to voters who are waiting in line to vote, that law also suppresses a bunch of press freedoms unconstitutionally, preventing oversight and reporting about ballot counting by the press and the public and preventing the public reporting of, of problems with voting systems and much more. So I'm a plaintiff in that case, challenging the uh, the state of Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, my good friend. I will note that the three hour deposition last week, I believe, went very well. Uh, I enjoyed it and I look forward to talking about it at some point in the future. But there are other plaintiffs in the case that are still going through the deposition process. So I don't want to throw anything off for the plaintiff team by discussing specific details about the depot at this moment on how things went, etc. But I'm sure I'll be doing so in the future. But I mention that because another aspect of Georgia's voter suppression law, SB 202, that is being challenged in that same lawsuit filed by the Coalition for Good Governance, in which I'm a plaintiff, has to do with a provision that allows the Secretary of State in Georgia to essentially replace entire county boards of elections. Local boards of elections can be replaced entirely with one single person, largely at the whim of the secretary. So, you know, along with crashing our economy and pushing unpopular unpop culture war nonsense to take away American freedoms, Republicans are also working hard, at least in Georgia, to prevent voting and as necessary to commandeer elections in jurisdictions that they may not currently control to their liking. But Georgia, unfortunately, is not the only place that that is now happening. The great state of Texas, like Georgia, has been a so-called red state now for many years, where due to unpopular Republican policies, they have also found themselves getting bluer and bluer and bluer in recent years, which means, like Georgia, the state of Texas is now taking measures to try to hold off that transition as long as possible. Not, of course, by modifying their policy positions, silly you, but by modifying their election laws in order to make it harder for non-Republicans to win elections. Texas state lawmakers crept closer late Monday night to approving a series of bills aimed at stripping one of the uh, one of the country's largest cities of the authority to run its own elections. The measure singles out Harris County. This is home to uh, both to 4.7 million people and 
to much of the city of Houston. That's the biggest city in Texas. It's a big blue island in the middle of a very red state. It is now. State lawmakers are now poised to pass two bills, if they haven't already done so uh, today, one which would fire Harris County's elections administrator and another which would lay out a process to give the Texas Secretary of State veto power over how elections are run in the uh, in Harris County in Houston. One amendment added late on Monday night in the state house, according to TPM's Josh Kavensky, made the legislature's intent impossible to ignore. It clarified that the measures in these uh, in these bills are meant to apply only to one very specific, large Democratic voting city and not to the rest of Texas. These will only apply to Harris County. The Texas Secretary of State, according to this amendment, only has veto power over election policies in counties with a population of four million or more. Of course, that means it only applies to Harris County. The uh, second largest county in the state is, do you know which one it is? I would presume it's either Dallas or Austin. Probably Dallas. It is Dallas County. That has a population of 2.6 million, according to the most recent census. So these laws, they only apply, well, they apply to all counties with a population of more (laughs) than 4 million. Yeah. Uh, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo said that the legislation would, quote, strip autonomy from the county. Texas lawmakers have spent years using phony voter fraud conspiracy conspiracies to attack elections administrators in Harris County. The heavily populated areas that happen to be voting increasingly Democratic. Harris County flipped. It was only a few years ago that they flipped from red to blue. And they have, you know, therefore become the first the first target of this. Texas may target more. The assault on Houston's elections is spread over multiple pieces of legislation. One would fire the election administrators of all counties in the state with a population of three point five million or more. (laughs) Uh, The other would allow state officials to reach deep into state's elections machinery while making it dramatically easier for any voter fraud complaint, regardless of basis in fact, to receive attention from high-ranking state officials. That proposal, for example, the uh, Secretary of State will have the authority to impose, quote, administrative oversight that would allow the Secretary to assume control of election policies in a given county and to fire local election officials that are deemed to, quote, impede the free exercise of a citizen's voting rights in the county. That is almost exactly what the Georgia SB 202 law already allows for in Georgia. Seeing a pattern here? So candidates and judges and party officials and even Political Action Committee, PAC leaders, can file a complaint, at which point the investigation would then be handled by the Secretary of State, who could then use those complaints to say, oh, well, we've got to take over elections. Look at all the complaints and remove local oversight and control of elections in now blue Houston. The Texas Senate voted to advance both of these bills earlier this month. They were set for a final vote on Tuesday. They dropped another proposal in one of the bills which would have allowed the Secretary of State to rerun elections that they did not like in Harris County. 
Uh, so uh, at least there's that. They're not going that far. Not yet. The uh, state lawmakers who sponsored both of these bills is a guy by the name of Senator Paul, State Senator Paul Betancourt. He's a former Harris County official. He was responsible for running the county's elections during his tenure in the office from 1998 to 2008. The uh, Austin American statesman reported back in 2008 that he resigned amid accusations of widespread voter suppression in the area including support for draconian photo ID voting restrictions, allegations that his office failed to process voter registrations. So now he's a state lawmaker and uh, he's having his revenge. And now that Harris has turned much bluer, Betancourt has been a vocal proponent of taking elections authority away from the local officials in his home of Harris County. Because, you know, Republicans, uh, they're against big government. They, they support local government control, right? Well, maybe not so much if those uh, local government controllers happen to be Democrats. Betancourt told the Houston Chronicle that other Texas counties could get the same treatment. Quote, I would hope that this type of performance never occurs in another county. But if it does, then I think the state is capable of coming in and taking the action. By this performance, of course, he means voting for Democrats. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You know, we've covered quite a few of these in uh, recent months and years, but we had another huge storm sort of spin up uh, in, in, the Pacific, in the Pacific overnight so quickly that it actually evaded your radar, Desi Doyen, <laughs> for our latest Green News report. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Cyclone Mawar, which is uh, headed for the, uh, the U.S. territory of Guam, and it is a beast. Um, residents are now headed to concrete shelters. The U.S. military is sending its ships from its naval base in Guam to safer locations because Super Typhoon Mawar is expected to make landfall somewhere in Guam, likely a direct hit, maybe not, but as a Category 4. And as you mentioned, what is becoming more common with global warming is that it underwent rapid intensification overnight in just Mm -hmm. 18 hours, giving everybody little time to prepare. But President Biden has already issued an emergency declaration for them. So fingers crossed, everybody be safe. Stay safe, Guam. Um, All right, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. These states essentially agreed to take less water from the Colorado River. Western states reach landmark agreement to stave off multi-decade drought crisis. 
World's lakes are shrinking due to human overuse and climate change. Plus, last year's election in November changed everything. Minnesota legislature poised to enact landmark environment and climate legislation. All of those landmarks and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It is the number one challenge in the world. A civilizational challenge unprecedented in scale and scope. And it is really striking that as we begin the official 2024 campaign, this issue, the most important one, the central civilizational challenge of our time, is utterly and completely absent and ignored from all Republican political campaign discourse. Mission accomplished. This is your Green News Report. Republicans don't care. Truly do not care if we melt the earth. Okay, Desi Doyen, big news. We've been talking about this now for a few months. The water wars, if you will, out west. Now, maybe a truce? Maybe. The Colorado River Basin states have agreed to cuts in water use to prevent the river from running dry amid an historic mega drought, the Bureau of Reclamation announced on Monday. California, Arizona, and Nevada have agreed to cut back on river water use by 13% over the next three years. That will be split up among farmers, tribes, and cities in exchange for more than a billion dollars in compensation from the federal government, funded by the Inflation Reduction Act. So if you give me money, then I won't drink water? No, if you give me money, then I won't plant these really expensive, thirsty crops. Because remember, agriculture is the primary user of the Colorado River. Good point. The cuts are necessary to preserve the operation of rapidly declining western reservoirs Lake Mead and Lake Powell. If finalized after a federal environmental review, this short-term deal would bridge the gap until the really difficult negotiations of allocating what is left of the Colorado River, which are set to start in 2026. So this gets us through to 2026, at least. That's good. And all of this made possible, really, because we had a really wet winter out here for a change in California. It certainly helped a lot for this negotiation, but it's not going to last much longer. Okay, Little Miss Negative. In Colorado, despite the ongoing mega drought, a new analysis shows that fossil fuel companies in the state actually doubled their withdrawals of the state's freshwater resources Mm -hmm. for fracking over the last 10 years, and that even as oil and gas production declined in the state. Data obtained by nonprofit group Frack Tracker Alliance also found that Colorado's drillers generated enough wastewater to supply their own fracking operations without draining the state's precious freshwater resources. They just don't care. Globally, the world's lakes are shrinking. A new study found that nearly 2,000 of the world's largest lakes have shrunk by trillions of gallons of water per year since 1992. The researchers say the decline of lakes is primarily attributable to human overuse and human-caused climate change, intensifying drought and shifting rainfall patterns. Even in regions seeing more extreme rainfall, the drier, hotter atmosphere generated by global warming is sucking up even more water through evaporation. Competition for declining lake water has major implications for agriculture, power plants, and drinking water around the world. So let the water wars continue, I guess. 
But some good news. The Environmental Protection Agency has moved to close a loophole that exempted hundreds of toxic coal ash waste dumps around the nation from clean water regulations. For the first time, utility companies would be forced to clean up toxic coal ash waste generated by burning coal for electricity. Studies have shown coal ash waste impoundments are leaching toxic heavy metals into groundwater supplies. The EPA also proposed new rules to crack down on polluted waste water from coal-burning power plants that is dumped into rivers. Finally, Minnesota lawmakers have agreed to enact historic environment and climate legislation that invests more than $2 billion to decarbonize the state and accelerate its clean energy transition. It also addresses environmental justice and includes the toughest regulations on PFAS forever chemicals in the country. The funding will go to solarize schools and public buildings, electrify homes, incentivize electric vehicles, build an EV charging network, and more. Here's Ellen Anderson, a former state legislator who now heads the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. It's the most transformational year we've had in climate and energy policy. It's a game-changing year that we're having at the state capitol in terms of our approach to climate and energy and what we're doing to move our our state forward dramatically. It's amazing what you can do when you get rid of gerrymandering and the people get to vote for who they want and they end up voting for Democrats and a whole bunch of stuff gets fixed. Imagine that. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And that is why, at the top of the show, I called our friends in Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, our heroes today. <laughs> yes, good job, Minnesota. Getting it right. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime. Thanks to at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work with a donation at bradblog.com slash donate. We could not, literally could not do it without you. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You rock